0: Please take your seats. It's good to see you here at the teaching service. And as Gabriel said, uh, we're nearly coming to the end of this series What If Jesus Had Never Been Born? The Positive Impact of Christianity in History. And today we're going to look at uh, an introduction to Christianity's contribution to civil liberty. And then next week we are going to finish. ...by looking at Christianity's contribution to morals and family life. How the gospel can transform societies and transform situations. So that's where we're going to finish. But if you have your revival times in front of you... ...you might like to turn to, I think it's page, page four... ...and you can see that we are gearing up for a new series... ...starting a week on Sunday... We're going to be spending six weeks looking at the greatest sermon ever preached. Unfortunately, it wasn't one of mine, but it was the Lord's, the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, we're going to discover Christ's pattern for spirit-filled living and spirit-filled relationships. The Sermon on the Mount is profound, and uh, it is Christ, the Sermon on the Mount is full of principles for our living, not laws. Some people look at the Sermon on the Mount as if it was a whole new set of laws for Christian to follow for Christians to follow. But it wasn't. I've just written a book, as many of you know, called No More Law and for the rest of this month we are selling it at a special price for you ten pounds and then it reverts to twelve ninety nine. And all my royalties go to the work of KT in Muslim nations. But you know about that, just to remind you that um, after next week, uh, this will go to full price. So If you want to get a book, get hold of it soon. The Sermon on the Mount isn't about laws. It's about principles and models of how to live the Spirit-filled life. And so we're going to uh, dive into that and really get to grips with how we should be living the Spirit-filled life in the Sermon on the Mount, and that will start on the 6th of May. Gabriel's already mentioned that our senior minister, Colin Dye, sends uh, his greetings to the church today. Um, Many of you know that last week he went somewhere in the world, very sensitive uh, to minister to the persecuted Christians, and uh, many of you have been praying for him and the team over the last week, and he very much uh, wants to thank us all for our prayers. It all went successfully, everything that that God wanted to achieve was achieved and he flew in safely uh, to London uh, this morning and he's traveling up to the national leadership team meeting of our movement, the Ilham Pentecostal Churches. And then at the end of the week, keep him in your prayers because he is uh, very moving in in apostolic ministry uh, out there into these persecuted nations. And later on next week, he will be flying to Brazil. Uh, We have pioneer works in Brazil. We have Brazilian ministries and churches here in London as well. And so Colin is going over to strengthen and impact the works there. And uh, he is going to be away uh, next week and the week after for that. So it's important that you know what our senior minister is doing so that you can keep him in your prayers and so that he can continue to be released to extend the apostolic ministry that's been given to himself and also to the church he leads, Kensington Temple. And those three series of meetings, the Grace for the City meetings that we had that led up to Easter in different parts of London where Colin ministered, just to say that those are now available, the messages Three messages uh, culminating on Easter week in the Royal Al- uh, not Royal Albert Hall, maybe next year, um, Westminster Westminster Chapel, and Colin's subject as he built through those consecutive three Tuesday evenings was: "Is anyone thirsty?" And they're available in audio for eight pounds or twelve pounds for DVD. Well, as I said, we're drawing to the close of um, this series, and uh, we were asking ourselves the question, what if Jesus had never been born? And the subjects that we have been looking at, if I can just recap, because if you missed any of them, as with all our Sunday sermons, you can always go on our website and the media page on kensingtontemple.org, and you can always go back to uh, sermons that have been preached before. And... um, we were asking ourselves the question, if Jesus had never been born, how would the world be different than it is today? And I was saying that there's a lot of people that take Christ and Christianity and its influence on the world throughout history for granted. Some of them take it for granted. Some, some of them dismiss it. I mean, we had all these secular prophets prophesying that we're in a post-Christian nation and that really what we need is less of Christianity in society and more of atheism. And people are saying, oh, you Christians, you just keep your faith to yourself, thank you very much, behind closed doors. You've got nothing to offer us. And so we looked at the The image of God in the first session, Christ and the value of human life. And I spent that time talking about how the gospel believes that every single human life, no matter what race or background or religious background, every life is sacred. The life that's in the womb, the elderly, children, everybody is sacred. Everybody is equal before the eyes of God, and that God so loves human beings that He became one himself. If there was just one human being on the earth, he'd have still died for them. And we looked at how that belief changed societies and nations and histories to the place wherein nations that have been heavily influenced by. Christianity. The, 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 the view of, of human worth has, has just increased, whereas you go to nations that, that aren't and you, you see terrible human uh, tragedies and lack of respect for life. Then we moved on to look at Christ's message for the poor and how Christ brought a message. And the first people he wanted to hear that message were the poor. He spent his time reaching out to those on the edges of society, the prostitutes and the lepers and all those that that were just pushed aside by mainstream society, Jesus made those his primary targets for his love. And that through the church history, again you can go back to this, I'm just recapping, through church history we find that, that the love of the poor, the ministry to the poor was at the heart of the gospel message. We then looked at education for everyone, Christ taught everybody indiscriminately. He taught women, he taught children, he taught anybody that would listen to him. And the values of education through the monastic systems and the universities set up by the church, right through today, how Christianity and the message of Christ, the greatest teacher that ever lived, has influenced the world for good. And so here we are today, freedom for all, Christians, Christianity's contribution to civil liberties and so when we talk about this what if jesus had never been born well i always say if you want to get an indication of what the world would be like if jesus hadn't been born spend a little bit of time looking at non-christian nations and you'll get a flavor of what it's like to have no influence of christ So spend a little bit of time looking at Saudi Arabia, spend a little bit of time looking at communist China, although of course, thank God, God is changing China with a great revival that's yet to hit the society and the government, but it's coming. Often when a revival comes, you see, when a revival hits, there's usually a delay, in my first book that I wrote, uh, Land of Hope and Glory, I go through the different revivals in British history, and you often see that there is a revival, and then once there's a revival, there's a little bit of a time lag as the new generation comes through, and then society begins to change. I mean, William Wilberforce, who uh, was the main driving force with the church behind the abolition of slavery in England, he was born again in the Methodist Revival. And so when the Methodist revival came to Britain in the 1700s, Britain was in a terrible godless mess. And when the Methodist revival came and hit, so many people were getting saved, but it was in the next generation... It was 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years after that great revival that we saw some of the most remarkable Christian influence in the 1800s when it came to feeding the poor and, and helping the poor and the salvation army and all these all these things, education for everyone, All these things came out of revival. You know the most important thing that we can do to change society? Win souls. Preach the message, you must be born again. Because we can... Petition government all we like and tell do this, do that, be Christian, be the other. But in the end, when we have a wave of people coming to Christ, what will happen as the multitudes come to Christ? They will begin to fill the places in government, they will begin to fill the places of influence, and they will take their Christianity with them. There's a time lag from that. And when we speak about freedom, We usually talk about things on civil liberties such as freedom of speech, the right to speak as you believe, freedom of religion, the right to worship as you feel uh, fit, and political freedom, the right to support and start the political parties that you like, and also freedom in justice, the right to a fair trial. These are the sort of things that we talk about. There's others as well when we talk about our civil liberties. And often there is a great deal of confusion in nations that have been forged with the Christian message, even if they are uh, backsliding from that message. Usually there is a great deal of misunderstanding by these Christian nations when they look at other non-Christian nations and assume that they would value freedom as much as we do. A classic example in point is the Arab Spring. Do you remember the Arab Spring? And right at the beginning, when the Arab Spring started and these dictators began to be toppled voluntarily or, or through revolution, as these things happen, the Western world that has been forged with Christian influence at the heart of it all started being excited. Isn't this wonderful? All these dictators and dictatorships. There's going to be democracy in the Middle East. How wonderful. Freedom is going to come to the Middle East. And they're going to have freedom, just like we have freedom. We're going to see freedom of speech, freedom of religion. We're going to see freedom and justice for the individual. People are going to have a, a, a fair trial and be treated fairly. And oh, it's going to be wonderful. Freedom's coming but it didn't did it not in the way that people thought because these countries that change they don't have the life-changing message pulsating through their society of christ his example and his teaching and so many people in the west couldn't believe that in egypt they started voting for parties that would bring less freedom the Muslim Brotherhood, who would get it, who, who, if they got into power, would begin to tighten and to, to bring people's freedom even less than those that were running before them. People couldn't understand why they would do that. Well, it's because the message of the gospel is a message of freedom. Whom the sun sets free is free indeed. I mean, can you imagine? We, we do take our freedoms for granted, and unfortunately, our freedoms, as the nations in the West turn away from Christianity, our freedoms are getting less and less and less. But still, we have great freedoms. On the news, there can be discussion about this, that, and the other. We can criticise our our government. It's incredible when you can listen to the radio and you can hear people criticizing the government. We take that for granted, but I know that some people here today from other countries and you think you have no idea, come back to my country, you make a criticism, we won't be seeing you for a long while. But when you're brought up in, the, in these things, you take this for granted. And you know what? When you take things for granted, they're usually taken away from you. If you take things for granted, then usually they, they, what you don't value ends up being taken away from you. I mean, you, can you imagine on the TV shows in Saudi Arabia, um, people um, criticizing the government? Can you imagine on the TV shows in Saudi Arabia, Arabia a discussion show on whether Muhammad was the prophet or not? Absolutely No way. Can you imagine TV stations in places like China where uh, they can criticize the government and hold the government to account through the newspapers? No. I mean, we think of individuals like Salman Rushdie. Do you remember him? He's been hiding a long time because when he wrote that book on the satanic verses, and I read that book, it wasn't that good. It wasn't that good. I remember reading at university thinking, if if, if. People in Islam, extremists, want to kill him. It must be a decent book. And I read it, and it was a bit garbled. And just because of one reference to verses written, so-called satanic verses written by Satan himself in the Quran, just because of that one reference, he's still today, 20-odd years, more than that, no, 25-odd years later, he's still under a death sentence, so much for freedom of speech civil lead liberties now now jesus is the ultimate promoter of civil liberties and the heart of the christian message is the gospel invitation the gospel invitation the gospel is an invitation and you can voluntarily accept the invitation of the gospel or you can deny the invitation of the gospel. It's up to you. The Bible preaches there'll be eternal consequences to your decision, but it gives you the right to accept or reject the gospel. That's all we want to do. We want to preach the gospel and give the gospel invitation to every man, woman, and child in the world. But if they say no, we're not going to twist their arm until they say yes. Do you know, that's the heart of the Christian message, that that recognizes the human right to reject the message of God. Yes, we say there are consequences. But you think of of, um, other religions, like Islam, for example. Islam won't take no for an answer. Right there in the Quran, it won't take no for an answer. And you think about societies that are Islamic. And the persecution right now in places like northern Nigeria, the Islamic strongholds of northern Nigeria, they don't want Christians there. They don't want freedom of other religions. And they're going, and as much as they can, those that follow the teachings of the Quran there's many lovely Muslims, of course, that would, would never do that. But... We're talking about followers of the Quran and the Hadiths. That's what we're talking about. Not someone who calls themselves a Muslim. There's many Christians that do things in the name of Christian that aren't authentic in the New Testament. But the authentic followers of Muhammad, they don't want any other religions or any other freedoms around them and they're willing to force and take away people's liberties burn churches shut down uh, christian homes in order to impose their religion because their religion teaches them in the quran that you can subject people to quran if 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 you give them the, first of all you bring them the message of the quran and the message of the muhammad And you give them an opportunity to accept. If they don't accept, you are then free to subjugate and force them to to accept. And if they still don't accept, the, the best scenario is that you're persecuted. The worst scenario is that you're wiped out. This is the teaching of Muhammad. This is the teaching of the Quran and the Hadiths. So there is a great difference between many of the religions... Now, I know that in the past, people claiming to be Christians have also persecuted the Jews. There was horrendous persecution of the Jewish people in the Middle Ages by the church. But what I'm talking about is the influence of Christ and authentic New Testament teaching. So when someone comes and tells me, well, what about... Or the persecution of the Jews in the Middle Ages where the Christians persecuted. And and in Britain, the Jews were expelled from Britain. And they'd say, well, what about that? I said, that that is nothing to do with New Testament Christianity. Jesus and his followers and his authentic followers would never, ever persecute others for their own belief. The people that did that were acting not according to this book. Okay, this book, the New Testament holds everybody to account. You call yourself a Christian, let's see if what you're doing is New Testament. Because we're not standing up for those that don't stand up for the New Testament, but we ourselves are prepared to change our actions according to the example of Christ in the New Testament. So I'm aware there's been terrible things done in the name of Christianity. I mean, Roman Catholicism in the past has banned Protestantism. But Protestants have banned Catholics and Catholics have burnt Protestants and Protestants have burnt Catholics and Protestants have have, have persecuted one another. All these things totally opposing the New Testament principles of freedom and liberty of a human being to choose to follow Jesus or not. Can you imagine Jesus saying, come and follow me? And some people saying no, and then him getting out his sword and putting it in the chest and saying, you will follow me. I mean, we're laughing because it's so preposterous. It's so opposite that Jesus did. Jesus said to the rich man, sell your possessions and come and follow me. And the rich man shook his head. He was sorry. And Christ said, it's your decision you follow me if you want, or you don't follow me. And this is important because it's taken a while over the centuries for the, for the incredible revolutionary message of Jesus to actually penetrate even so-called Christian societies. Jesus' message was so ahead of history. I mean, even now, we're still coming to terms with the radical teaching of Jesus. Even now, we're still saying, you know, we've got so much to learn about what love means, so much to learn about the fruit of the Spirit. Jesus' message is revolutionary. It took, it took societies centuries to grasp what he was saying. Even Christian societies, it took them a lot of time to grasp what Jesus was saying. And, and his values, Galatians 3, verse 28, there is no Jew or Greek or slave, nor free, nor male nor female, we all one in Christ. In other words, Christ, when he looks out, he sees everybody as unique, f- free and worthy. You know, uh, the seeds of the destruction of slavery were there in the New Testament, to say there's neither free or slave in Christ is an incredible thing to say. Because in those days and in the days to come, even in Britain and, so, and America, so-called Christian nations, even in the 1700s, when they turned and looked at the Africans, they said, they're not the same as us. They, they are slaves. They, they are subhuman. That's the way they viewed it. But they hadn't read their New Testaments that said that all men are created equal in the sight of God, whatever race or or background. And Paul and Jesus recognized this right from the beginning. I mean, even that small letter to Philemon, what a wonderful thing. When a runaway slave had run away, Paul sent him back and said, receive him back, but not as a slave, receive him back as a brother. These types of seeds of freedom and liberty were so revolutionary, as I've said, it's taken centuries. And even now, we're still trying to grasp the unique and revolutionary message and example of, of, of Jesus. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, we again see that not only are, are civil liberties Are important by the fact that every human being is equal with one another, but even the sense of justice. You know, even in the Old Testament, even in in the Mosaic law, the law said that you can't bring a charge against anybody without at least having two witnesses, Deuteronomy 19.16. Now you might say, well, so what? That is a huge step in individual justice. Because often we found in history that where there's been totalitarian governments or dictators or kings that rule autocratically, that one of the first things that that goes is your right to a fair trial. Again, some of you from nations that that aren't as free as so-called free nations will know that you can't be sure that you'll have a free trial, that someone can bring accusations against you. And for weeks, months, even years, you can wait without even having a proper trial. But in the Mosaic law, it recognized that before you can bring someone to court, you've got, you've got to have evidence. You've got to have testimony. Even, and in the New Testament, we know that even in the church, it was something had to be established between two or three. And so this principle of fairness... And justice is something that we find with Jesus and the gospel, that people have a right to be treated fairly. I know that some of the things that I'm saying today, if you've been brought up in England, you'll be saying, yeah, of course, yeah, what's the big deal? Yeah, yeah, what's the big deal? But if you begin to look at what's going around, around the world, you will realize that what I'm talking about in many nations would be revolutionary. Revolutionary the idea of a fair trial, the idea of a transparent justice system that, it was set, that itself is open to critique, the idea that a government itself can be held account, or a president or leader themselves can be held to account. These things are Christ's example and the New Testament example as well. Now, in the revival times that you've been given... Uh, One of the things I want to talk about today is in an article by uh, our senior minister Colin on um, page six and seven, when politicians cross the line. Now, this article will really help me today if you can read it afterwards, because in it Colin talks about church and state. And the relationship between politicians and different religions. And, and, and this is important today because when you get Ken Livingstone going around saying that if he's elected, vote for me, he says, and I will make London a beacon of Islam to the world. We have to say, how does this work when politicians do these things? And his quote is in the article, and so you can read that, f- read that for yourself. When David Cameron starts making pronouncements on what the church should believe about marriage and who can get married and tells us to preach morals and then goes and and is attempting to uh, dismantle one of the most important uh, moral institutions of society, marriage between man and woman, to demolish it, to demolish it, to demolish biblical marriage. We have to ask ourselves, what is the relationship between church and and state and colin does a a wonderful job in in that and brings it right home to what's happening in society today in all parties not one or the other but all of them and i want to make this clear to you because it's going to help you understanding about civil liberties because this is to do with government and we see in past history that when religion and the government become one trouble starts to happen trouble starts to happen even in the christian history when when roman catholicism became in charge of kings and regions trouble happened the same with with with, with the uh, the church of england when that when that became the s- state church under henry the eighth trouble happened when cromwell overthrew the king and now Purita- puritanism Became almost, well, in all but name, the church state. Trouble happened. People's rights were violated. What is the link between church and state? Well, I'd like you please to come with me to Matthew chapter 22, verse 21. Matthew chapter 22, verse 21. All right. This is a situation where the Jews come to Jesus to trick him. They say, tell us, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And then Jesus said, show me the tax money. And they bring it to him, a denarius. And he says, whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Jesus here is recognizing that there are two institutions that have been given to us by God. One is the church, and the other is the institution of government. Turn with me to Romans 13, where I can highlight that. Sometimes Christians don't realize that. They, They think that God gave us the church, but he also is behind government. Not that every government is godly, but then not every church is godly either, is it? But the institution, the idea... The, uh, the God-given role for church and for state. Romans chapter 13. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority, resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil... "'Do you want to be unafraid of authority? "'Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. "'For he is God's minister to you for good. "'But if you do evil, be afraid, "'for he does not bear the sword in vain. "'For he is God's minister, "'an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. "'Therefore you must be subject not only because of wrath, "'but also because of conscience' sake. "'For because of this you also pay taxes.' For they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore all their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due. Customs to whom customs are due. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. Oh, nothing to anybody except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Can you see this? Here, the teaching, you know, based on Jesus' talking about... Paid to Caesar what Caesar and to God to God. That here Paul is saying, hey, the idea of government is God's idea, and we should recognize it as Christians. We should pay taxes, we should honor the government because government is meant, not all governments do, but God's idea for government is to bring stability to society, to deal with evil and to bring structure and peace into society where we as Christians can minister the gospel. Later on, we we find prayers in, in Timothy and saying, you know, pray for all who are in authority, for kings and princes and prime ministers. Pray for them. Why? That we might be able to live out our faith in peace and godliness, all right? And so we have a picture of two institutions, not one, TWO INSTITUTIONS, THE CHURCH AND THE STATE. AND uh, THESE TWO INSTITUTIONS ARE BOTH FROM GOD, BOTH FROM GOD. THAT'S WHY WHEN YOU HEAR ABOUT PEOPLE THAT ARE IN GOVERNMENT, THEY'RE CALLED MINISTERS. MINISTERS, THE MINISTER OF EDUCATION, uh, YOU KNOW, THE the MINISTER OF DEFENSE. I REMEMBER ONCE PUTTING ON um, SOME APPLICATION FOR MY JOB, AND I PUT MINISTER, AND THE PERSON LOOKED AT IT AND SAID, what part of government are you in? I thought, oh, all right, minister of religion or minister of Christianity. That's 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 what I am. But we're both we're meant to be both ministers. A- and God expects that those that are in government will be his ministers as much as those that preach the gospel and pastor and the fivefold. God's expectation is that. The ministers in government will be as godly as the ministers in the church. That's his expectation, although they have different roles. And you'll see, Colin, in the article, do read it, speaking about what happens when these roles get mixed up. When these roles get mixed up. I mean, when the church becomes the state, then what often happens is we begin to legislate uh, in the, well, in past history, and we begin to enforce Christian principles on people. And you, you will see that. Just, just read the history of the Christian church. You will see it. it's, not, it's not something to be proud of. When, when, when bishops are handing out prison sentences um, for reading the wrong version of the Bible and all these crazy things, what's going on? They're imposing their faith. "...through government power." that's not what Christ did. He made a separation between the two. And so so did Paul. It's not the job of the government to legislate what you believe. Not the job. But you know, this is a problem because uh, authentic Christianity understands that the gospel is not legislated through law. You can't legislate morality. "...Thou shalt not sin, or thou shalt go to prison." Now, now you can deal with public order and, 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 and things like that, but I'm talking about you know you know moral moral issues uh, that that in the past had have, have been. I mean, Oliver Cromwell banned he, he he banned Christmas. Banned Christmas when the Puritans got in charge, they banned Christmas. They said it was a pagan festival and they banned it. Well, what if I disagree? I want to celebrate Christmas, it's the law. They banned theaters. They banned dancing. They thought that through government power that they could force people to live godly lives. But actually when you force someone to live a godly life like that and you impose your faith on others, what you're doing is you're actually taking away their liberty. It's no longer a gospel invitation; it becomes a gospel law. But thank God, those days are long gone, and, uh, and most of Christians have learnt that, that that's not our role. The gospel invitation and, and and the government's role is to bring order and peace into society. But not all religions are like that. This is why why when people say you know religion, we want to take religion out of society. We don't want religion in Parliament. We don't want religion in our laws. I say, well, excuse me. Which religion are you talking about? Which religion are you talking about that you don't want to do it? Because I tell you what, there are different religions, and Islam is is a state religion. Islam is is a, a, a social, uh, political religion. It is it's it's a religious policy. It's a it's it's politics in the garb of religion. That's why when you go to an Islamic nation, the laws are there regulating. The Sharia law isn't just for Muslims. Do you know that? Sharia law is not just for Muslims. Oh, I'm a Muslim, and so I'd like to be under Sharia law. What you want to do is fine for you, but I'd like to be under Sharia law. Okay, well, like I said, go to Saudi Arabia and say, Hello, I'm a Christian. I don't believe in Sharia law, so um, I'll be living free from that. Thank you very much. What do you think they'll say to you? Because Islam and government are fused together, fused together. It's the imposition of a religion through secular power. And that is at the heart of the Quran and the Hadiths, or at the heart of the New Testament is a separation. And where this lesson has been learned, for example, in the United States of America, they learned the lesson... The lesson's going a little bit astray, but they learned the lesson of separating the church and the state. Why did they learn that lesson? Because the founding fathers of America, do you know, they left Britain because they were being persecuted they were being persecuted by other Christians. They couldn't practice their faith. They didn't have freedom of religion, and they couldn't get it in England. So they made the the journey all the way over to America, and they said, in this place, people are going to have freedom of conscience, freedom to believe God, freedom of religious practice. And have you ever heard of the state of Pennsylvania? Well, the Quakers Christian group had a powerful influence in this and one of the great Quakers was a man called William Penn. His grave is just um, about three miles away from where I live and on occasion I go go and visit it because he had such a tremendous impact on the state of Pennsylvania where they began to bring in such things as people having votes as individuals of freedom of religion. And it was out of the experiment in Pennsylvania that actually, you know, the whole, the whole American constitution was birthed out of that. And when the American constitution was born, the majority of people, the vast majority of people that devised that were Christians. And their idea was, is that we'll have the state and the state will keep order but the state will not order religious beliefs. There'll be freedom of religious beliefs. And so therefore in America, you have this very strong understanding of the separation between church and state, don't you? I mean, England is going that way, but it's still a bit confused, isn't it? Because the queen is the head of state, isn't she? But do you know she's also the head of the national church? She is the head of the Church of England. Even to this day... We have Church of England bishops that sit in the House of Lords that have political power. Did you know that? And that's still something from the past. But the Americans said, no, we're going to separate them. And the idea was was that they would separate the church and the state. And it wasn't that... It was that that you would have... uh, The church and state were separated so that you could have freedom of religion... But today, people are using that to try and be free of religion. So when you see what's going on in America today, you have people that want to drive out prayers from schools. You've heard all of this, haven't you? They don't want the Ten Commandments on uh, 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 um, in courts. They want to drive out prayer groups. They don't want these, these secularists. They don't want Christianity in school at the, at the moment. And so they're saying... We don't want religion in state. So so in their view, they're using the state to get rid of religion when actually it was formed to preserve people's faith. So when we talk about freedoms, we have to say that freedoms in different religions can be very, very different. A Christian-influenced nation will always give freedom to other religions. But there are religions today that if they're given power, they will take freedoms away. All religions are not the same. All religions do not accept the freedom of other religions to, accept, to, to to exist. Christianity does. Many of the other religions, especially Islam, just look at the world and what Islam does when it's in charge or it's the majority. Islam does not recognize the right of Christianity to flourish in freedom. It's part of its very reason of being, okay? And so as we finish today, I just brought some thoughts to you really. These are just introductory things. But we have to wake up. We have to wake up and we have to stand up for the Christian faith and say it is not like other faiths. And people in the secularists, these atheists who, are, who, who have their own style of faith, their own faith. And we looked at that when I looked at it before this series, we looked at secular faith. All these people that don't believe in in, in religion, they say, well, there's religion on that side, and then there's reason and secular and atheism. And and we looked at how misguided they are and how it's time to challenge the tenets of their faith. Because if you don't believe in God, that has a profound effect on your politics and your policy. If you believe that we, we are just evolutionary genetic machines that produce other genetic machines. That's why there's, there's such a hostility to life in the womb, where people are now saying that you're not a person at the moment of, 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 of um, conception. You're not a person. Why? You're just a bunch of cells. Excuse me, that is a value statement, a value statement. Like I said, it's time to say that religions are not all the same. Secularism is as different to Christianity as Islam is to secularism. And each religion, including atheism, needs to be examined on its own belief system. It's time that people matured and stopped just lumping everything together. It Christianity and Islam could not be more different at every respect. If you say anything else, then you just... You're just making it up as you go along. Christ preaches freedom and liberty for all. It's the invitation of the gospel. Christian nations have evolved to the praise of freedom and liberty, and Christian and the mes- Christianity and the message of Christ has been one of the main, not the only, but one of the main factors in freedom today. And isn't it interesting that as we as people turn their back on the Christian message. So it's getting more and more difficult to practice your freedom. You can't even wear a cross to work. Why? Because we don't want your... Ri- Whoa, you can't even wear a cross to work. Uh, you, you can't even preach the gospel or have a different opinion to what the secularist says. You, you can't even make a moral statement about homosexuality today. It doesn't mean that if you, if you disagree with homosexuality that, you want, that you're a homophobe, but you're not even allowed to have a different opinion. Where is live and let live? You know, I believe in gay rights. I do. I really do because I'm a Christian. But I don't believe in gay rule. Amen. And we're turning from gay rights to gay rule. You see, we had in the state legislated, didn't we, um, civil civil liberties and civil partnerships, which give every right that you have in marriage. Every right. But now, you Christians have no right to have biblical marriage. You know that? Telling us what to do. There's no live and, live, live and let live there. There's no let there be different opinions, let there be different groups. There's, there's no live and let live there no what we 're finding more and more is the secular religion of this nation is telling us what to believe, how to believe, and what to and if we don 't do it, we are considered the ones that are narrow minded and fundamentalists i 'm telling you what there 's nothing more fundamentalist than a secular atheist on the war path to destroy the church and these, there, there was a law that on this i 'll finish there was a law that was going to come in a few years ago when tony blair was was president, and prime minister. And when that law came in, it would have meant that if you had preached the gospel to someone and they were offended by it, you could be taken to prison for offending their religious sensibilities. You could no longer preach or give your opinion on faith anymore. Christians who are teachers who want to give an opinion on the debate, it's a debate between creation and evolution, are forbidden to do it, lose their job to do it. Why? Who says? Where is, the live and li- where is the freedom and the liberties for people to be who they are? It's being pressed out. We're being conformed. We're having our civil liberties taken away from us by people that don't believe we deserve to preach the gospel that is at the heart of freedom ...for human beings. I'm raising the issues today. This isn't, this isn't uh, uh, you know, I, I, I taught this a lot more in our apologetics course. But these sessions here, I'm not here to answer all the questions. I'm here to raise some issues for us to think about it. This nation should thank God for the example and message of Jesus Christ. The message of tolerance. The message of invitation... The message of human value and human worth, the message of grace and mercy, this nation should be thankful for that. And, and we should be allowed to preach this message in the marketplace. Let, let us all be in the marketplace. Let every religion and second, let's all go to the marketplace. Let's all have the equal opportunities to preach our faith. But let's not rob each other of it either in the name of Jesus Amen. God bless you. Well, I hope you can stay for the revival meeting this evening. If not, uh, have a wonderful week. And um, don't forget, next week is the last in this series. And then we're going to be spending some time. We're going to shift from looking at society and things. We're going to go right back into the Word of God and the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to walk through that sermon, that life-changing sermon together. God bless you.